0: Support for On Being is brought to you by MindShift, stories teachers share, a podcast from KQED that explores the heart of teaching. Download MindShift on iTunes and NPR
1: One. Soundtracks of movies become soundtracks of our culture. Movies, for some of us, are a form of modern church. So though you may not immediately recognize the name Gustavo Santa Olaya, you've probably heard the cinematic landscapes he's created for films like Babel and Brokeback Mountain, for which he's won Academy Awards. This is the opening track from the film The Motorcycle Diaries we experience Gustavo Santa Olaya's human and creative philosophy behind a kind of music that moves us like no other.
0: I, in general, like not to have too much music in the movies. I like the music to become relevant at certain points when you have a really dramatic scene, when something is really happening on the screen, why would you put some music to it? you know? I mean, you you can turn something dramatic into something melodramatic very easily.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Gustavo Santa Olaya grew up in Argentina in the time of the military junta and the trauma that became known as the Dirty War. After moving to Los Angeles, he became a record producer, a sometime solo performer, and he's composed the scores for over a dozen feature films. In all of this, he sustains a creative tension between his Argentinian identity and the global contours of modern film and modern life. I spoke with him in 2015, the year he was inducted into the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. So tell me just as we begin, how would you describe the spiritual background of your childhood? You know, however however you understand that now.
0: Absolutely. I was raised in um, the province of Buenos Aires. I wasn't raised in the city. I was like probably like an hour away from the city in a very bucolic place. I mean, you know, dirt roads and birds and insects and gardens and wonderful trees. Uh, my parents were Catholic. I mean, uh, my mom's still Catholic. My dad passed away when I was young. And I was raised Catholic. And um, so I always find a connection between music and, and kind of that spiritual life. That came to me basically through, you know, me going to church and, and what I was learning there. Uh, I started playing guitar when I was five years old. Right. Uh, so it was a very early age. And, you know, I, I could really connect the music and, and that art, you know, to, to my spirit. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I was an altar boy. I mean, I did, you know, all the, the things. And I was very interested in the church, actually. I thought of becoming a priest. When I was a a little kid. But by the time I was 11, I went into a spiritual crisis. I'd um, that, so y- I I say went... that's
1: young for a spiritual crisis. <laughs> you were a prodigy in your spiritual
0: crisis. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> and uh, so I went, I went to the priest and um, told him my um, questions, and they called my parents, and... Uh, they, I don't know. I think they been planned to exercise me or something. And, and uh, my father, who was an amazing guy, just told me, you know, listen, if you don't feel it anymore, you shouldn't do it, you know. And that was it. They, I was never uh, called mm. upon that subject anymore by my parents, and they just let me continue with my own search, mm. which I still do until this day. And then I went into, you know, different searches in my life. I um, actually lived in a commune between 18 and 24, and I led a pretty uh, monastic life. I mean, we're talking about years, you know, where we're, the, you know, the hippie years and, you know, a, other type of also of communes. But, you know, we... The, yeah, we I've did. seen
1: that described as a yogic commune that you were in.
0: Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes. And we did, you know, uh, comparative studies of religion. And, really? and it was a great... Yeah, and it was great... And you were a, great, a band,
1: right? But you were... You were... <laughs> I was,
0: I was, we were in a big band. Yeah. A band that was, you know, and for I've a while... And i like a fusion one. of
1: rock and Latin American folk.
0: Absolutely. Uh-huh. Arcoiris was the name of the band, Rainbow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so, but I, I led a truly monastic life. I was, mm. not only, I mean, I didn't do any drugs or alcohol, I didn't eat any meat. I mean, I was vegetarian in Argentina at a time where people looked at you like, is this guy okay? Is he sick? I mean, how can he not eat meat? Uh, but also I was celibate, you know, I mean, all, all really? those years, you know. Yes, uh-huh. yes. I mean, in the in the pinnacle of success with my rock band, I, uh, <laughs> I practiced Kundalini yoga and, you know, so... Yeah. Transmute my energy, and uh, it was a great learning experience and lots of stuff that I learned there it took with me for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah Let me just ask you about so that yes. was your first band when you were 16, but yes. I've seen two interesting musical influences from your early life, and one of them is tango that you just yes. that you grew up listening to tango just around the mm-hmm. house. Uh, and the other was the Beatles,
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, the and Beatles are like my my I think, you know I mean, I, I, of course, I, I was listening to music before the Beatles came, yeah, to, you know and to our light, but but uh, really the, they made the difference, and they were a guiding force, and you know, still are. I mean, they are, I believe they're kind of like my Musical parents, you know, huh. um, but uh, tango—I, I, you know—it was music that was a- around the house and it was around uh, everywhere because you can hear tango in, on the buses or, you know, on the radio at home. My father used to sing every morning. Meanwhile, he he shaved. He would sing, you know, tangos, and he would stop the shaving to, you know, finish a phrase of of, of a tango. <laughs> So um it was around me and part of my sort of my sonic landscape since I was a kid at the beginning really I mean I didn't get it when I was a kid but when I became more more involved and I had my band I always had tremendous respect for the musicians and for the genre. I mean, the genre is such an unbelievable style of music. I mean, it's a style of music that can be so sophisticated and yet so popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, people, Both of those you know, things
1: at the same time. Yeah. At
0: the same time. Yeah. I mean, so I always f- was very, very respectful about it and, I, and because I am a, a sort of an advocate of the concept of identity and I always felt that uh, it was very important for me to show... Uh, who I am and, and where do I come from in everything that I do, I knew that at a certain point tango was going to come into my life. I just, you know, had to wait. And and I think uh, in my case, although there are some great young uh, tango performers and artists involved with the culture, in my case, I mean, I think age play an important role. I think... Uh, h- uh, h- what do you mean by tango, that? Well, I think tango... Taps into subjects in such a passionate and with such a experienced in life that you have to really have Lived some time to really appreciate it, you know. I always find very, almost I would say, ridiculous, you know, when when you see a little kid on TV singing a tango. I just think that that, that they can't you, get it,
1: that they can't possibly understand it.
0: No, because I think you know you need to have uh, some uh, true, uh, you know, heavy experiences. I mean, you have to ex- have experienced life to be able to interpret properly that genre. Vieja viola. Garufera y vibradora De mis tiempos de parranda y copetí, De las tantas serenatas a la lora Que la dueña de mi cuore Y patrona del bulín ¿Cómo estás de abandonada y silenciosa Después que fuiste mi sueño de canto? quien te ha oído sonar papa y melodiosa no dice que sos la dueña de mi pobre corazón es que So in my case yeah. it really worked that way you know I, that's when when I decided to explore in the in the genre and since I'm not an academically trained musician I don't know how to read or write music but uh, the, my my way really to learn is by doing it, you know, playing it or listening to it or being close to somebody that, that is a master so I can learn something from uh, that way. And uh, and so I did a project called Café de los Maestros that involved, uh, uh, I think, the greatest uh, tango players alive at the moment. Unfortunately, that project Neo came out in 2005 and most of the people that participated on that uh, are now gone. And so it was great to actually capture them, uh, still vital still, you know, doing great music and it was a very, very rewarding experience.
1: This music is from that Café de los Maestros album, featuring legendary masters of tango from the 1940s and 50s. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. My guest, Gustavo Santaolalla, is best known in the U.S. for his Oscar-winning soundtracks to movies like Babel and Brokeback Mountain. I think what you just said about tango, that it holds depths of human experience. One thing that people experience in your music, and probably most people have experienced that through through the m- music you've written for movies, Brokeback Mountain or Babel or Motorcycle Diaries, um, is this scope of human experience. Laughter and joy and pain and heartbreak and loss, that all those things are there together. And I do want to ask you um, if you think that that was also informed by... Growing up in Argentina when you did, I mean, you, you talked about identity as this theme that runs throughout your life and yes. your spiritual search and your music. And I, yes. I just wonder if you'd say a little bit more about that root of your own identity.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's a combination of many things. I mean, as I grew older and did more, I mean, lots of times I've been able to articulate things years after I've
1: you yes, know I right. played them.
0: For example, I mean, now I can talk about my use of silence and space in the music, but it was totally something that was, I mean, unconscious in the sense, I mean, that was the way I heard that it should be played, you know, no, not that it was something that I was doing on purpose, that there was, you know, an, a logistic behind that decision. It was very intuitive, just like everything that I, that I do. Can and you, I think... Can you think yes. about
1: um, uh, something you've, you wrote or where you observe the silence or space later on? I think Bromback
0: Mountain is a great example, uh-huh. you know? Like uh, uh, in some of those, uh, the first, I mean, the, the first theme that plays when the, the movie opens. Dun. Dun, dun. And so there's all those spaces you know I mean I love that moment where you're kind of suspended and you're you know it's not the silence that occurs at the very end of a tune but it's a silence that occurs between two notes Mm -hmm. I, I like to think that you know playing a lot of notes is something that is easier to achieve you just practice a lot and you get to play a lot of notes not playing it's a little bit more difficult sometimes you know to the subject of identity I yeah. feel that there's a point that even all those influences I mean obviously they come to play a role but then there's something more deep that really relates to who you are as a human being and obviously that all those elements those cultural elements your upbringing all the, that plays a role but there is something that comes from within and that connects to something that I don't understand and, uh, any artist that is really honest I think we'll agree that there's a point that you don't really know who is doing what you're doing. I mean, you are doing it, but there's something, there's a connection with something else that is beyond your understanding. And finding who you are in that connection, Mm -hmm. that's another deeper part of your identity that I'm working on now, you know.
1: That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And it's also something that's really hard to talk about, right, to put words Absolutely. Yeah. Because I hear you, you're talking about something relational, and like whether you want to call that God or...
0: Yes, like, I don't like, I mean, for many years, you know, I mean, I, I'm kind of like an agnostic now, yeah. you know, and I, I've, uh, I do feel that there is something that is uh, bigger and stronger than me than each one of these elements that we are, you know, part of, mm. you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And that somehow that's in the creative process, that you experience that through the creative process.
0: I believe so. Mm-hmm. I believe so. It's something that it's really beyond me. And I think because of the connection with heart, with the feelings, you know, it's yeah. not something that is just neurological. But uh, I feel that whatever I do it has to be connected with the heart. As much as rational as I can put into something and say, I'm going to use this instrument or for this movie, I believe this. And yeah. that is p- part of a, you know, rationalizing what I'm going to do, the moment that I'm creating and that I'm there confronted with whatever comes out of my hands or whatever I'm, you know, playing, it's something really that connects with my heart.
1: like there's also, well, there's very much in your musical career, this transcending boundaries of identity. I mean, certainly, you know, geographic and cultural, right? And again, it's all through your musical career. It's certainly there. I mean, in the the scores you've done for movies, you know, Brokeback Mountain could not be more American. You know, Babel had this Middle Eastern component, Motorcycle Diaries, Latin America. It's And it seems like that is a special part of your kind of inspiration, um, h- how does that fit into kind of your, I don't know, I would say your philosophy of music or of what music can do? Well,
0: I do believe that part of, you know, you know, you have an identity, a first identity that is related probably to your family. Yeah. Then you have an identity with your block, the block that you live in, yeah. then your neighborhood, then the city, you know, then the country, then the region of the world, and then finally the world. There is an identity of us as planetary beings mm. and specifically also I mean in those examples Brokeback Mountain and Babel and Motorcycle Diaries I, I did want to you know also obviously express in the music you know the backdrop that this music was set up against but at the same time I wanted to give it a universal feeling I think um, yeah. in Brokeback Mountain for example I know that there is an influences of, of Atahualpa Yupanqui who's a who was a, an amazing guitar player and and singer songwriter for from Argentina? Probably nobody knows this, but I know that mm. that there there is an influence and i'm I'm pretty sure if somebody from Texas would have done the music, it would have been different you know, mm. and yet you know it fit. The music, it did it, it fit, and, and nobody said, oh, this sounds like, you know, this doesn't sound like a music that could right. know, be it in an Americana movie. It, right. it, it fits, but yet it was, you know, it has that, for me, that global component that I also like to feel that I have in my, that sort of universal feeling to it, no matter if it's yeah. tinted with, you know, South American flavor, or with an Americana mm-hmm. flavor, or with a Middle Eastern flavor, still has a universal appeal. Mm-hmm.
1: a minute ago about the different layers of identity that pertain to all of us the you know from the very personal to the global mm-hmm. i think though even though in the 21st century we live in a globalized world where our fate is tied in very concrete ways to people across the globe that heart connection to that reality it's not always easy to muster, right? We haven't all made that leap in our minds and hearts. I'm sorry,
0: you you said our fate is connected? Yeah, or that our fate, faith?
1: I mean, we genu- genuinely are tied to the fate of people around the world.
0: Absolutely, right? we are but, all connected. But we
1: don't always, you know, it, it can also be an abstraction. And it, it seems to me that through music you actually have access to that to those music overlapping is, identities in a way that... I, I, can...
0: I have to... Uh, agree, I agree with you uh-huh. because I, I think music is a, is a different art form. I mean, I've been told this by the, some of the these great directors that I had the opportunity to work with. I mean, and, and not just one of them, but, you know, three of them. You know, the great mm-hmm. ones, Alejandro González to Walter Salles, and Ang Lee. I mean, they manifested how sometimes, you know, they feel envy about a musician because, you know, for their art, there's so many steps involved in the process of making a film you know right. getting the camera and shooting a scene and editing and looking at it and act i mean whereas you know you grab, grab a guitar and you can just create a moment and then it goes boom that's it you know if you play something <laughs> live you will play it in and they went where did it go you know but but it could evoke in that moment uh all kinds of of emotions i think music has that it's embedded in the, the DNA of music, this, this universal connection, it, it is part of what music has that I don't think all arts have.
1: Right. You know, you've told a story about when you were doing the score for Babel, and you said you, you were looking for an instrument that worked as a connector. Correct. And you didn't want it to end up sounding like it was a National Geographic documentary. Correct. Right. I mean, tell that story because I think that's a great example, though, of also how you're. You know, you're not doing this in a linear, simplistic. Yes, way. because
0: uh, I, I, you know, an, an instrument can be a great storyteller, and I thought about it for Babel specifically because you know the film takes place in three different yeah. locations: in Africa, in Southern California, Mexico, Mexican border, and in Japan. So. I found in the oud that instrument, and the, the oud is the ancestor of the lute, therefore the ancestor of the guitar. Yeah. Something very related to to me personally. So the oud was perfect for this arabic feel that i wanted to have in the moroccan part of, of the film uh, but although i don't play the oud like a traditional oud player because they play with a plectrum i play with my fingers it's a totally different um, groove i just you know but it still is the instrument i didn't want it to sound you know 100 percent truly folkloric from that part i just wanted to evoke that feeling and and that instrument, because it was an ancestor of the guitar, and it connected to the guitar for me was perfect for the Mexico, you know, South Mexico. Right, southern it has it has
1: tentacles to these other cultures then.
0: Of course, uh-huh. and it had a resonance, especially when I played it the way I played it with the koto, which is a string instrument from Japan. So right. I found that this instrument could connect the stories, and it was a great uh, helper for me.
1: There's this line, I think you've said, it's an Argentinian idea that paint your little village and you will be painting the world.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's what we've been talking yeah. about.
1: You can listen again and share this show with Gustavo Santaolalla Olaya through our website onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with the Argentinian film composer and musician Gustavo Santaolalla. He often brings the ronroco, a small Andean instrument from the mandolin family, into his music and his award-winning film scores for Brokeback Mountain and Babel. This is him playing the ronroco and the guitar in his score for the animated film The Book of Life. Gustavo Santa Olaya is based in Los Angeles, but he grew up making music as the Dirty War began in Argentina, in which so many people disappeared at the hands of a military junta. He's remained steeped in a Latin American sensibility, even as he scores films that evoke the global contours of modern life. You know, I wanted to ask you about what you've learned about how music works with movies and in movies. Mm-hmm. To deepen and you know complete that experience, but I'm wondering as as I'm listening to you speak whether, you know, in fact, the music in movies is is part of what draws us on an emotional level into that, like makes this experience that we're watching, the story, connects on another level to our own internal lives.
0: Yes, I'm going to talk for my. Yeah. particular experience because there's, you know, so many ways to to tap into this and there's people, you know, that do a different type of work and still is amazing. You know, people that work with huge orchestras yeah. and with movies that have music and music and music and music. I mean, you know, I mean I've done some of that too, but in general, you know, my approach has been always more more minimal and with a, a discreet use of music, I find that music uh, in movies... I, I, in general, like not to have too much music in the movies. I like the mm. music to become relevant at certain points. Uh, you know, when you have a really dramatic scene where something is really happening on the screen why would you put some music to it mm-hmm. you know I mean you, mm-hmm. you can turn something dramatic into something melodramatic right very easily you know I find that also very uh, disturbing sometimes in documentaries you know when you have something that is a very strong reality or very yes. and you put music to it and then it kind of like trivializes well that, it can what also be saying, emos- know, emotionally
1: manipulative
0: Exactly. And yeah. then so I, I always like to be more discreet with the music to try to, you know, let the scene finish and then come in with the music to kind of support and let you as an spectator emotionally get that scene sink into you you know but by, mm-hmm. by the help of the music but once that the, the scene is done you know so i really dislike when when i see i mean i could see picture uh, myself watching a, a director and an editor in a in a room looking at a scene that is not working and saying you know let's put some music you know let's <laughs> right. let's see if we can we can solve this with the music you know right. uh, and uh, i just don't like that and i see that a lot <laughs>
1: Huh. But also, I was really intrigued to learn that you do you always write the music before the film is shot?
0: I don't, but that's my that's my favorite way of of working. I but mean, that's I really so like...
1: surprising. I think to an outsider, I mean, I, one would never imagine that that's even possible.
0: Well, the biggest example of that is *Brokeback*. I did the whole score of that movie just from the script. And one meeting with Ang Lee. Really? and uh, Before they shot one frame. And obviously, I mean, it was the genius of Ang Lee to say, well, we're going to put this piece here. We're going to yeah. put here this. We're going to repeat it here. But he had, by the moment he you know, sat down to to edit the film, he had a basket full of music, you know, that, mm. that was inspired mm by the story, the characters, and by talking to him just once. But, you know, I had a great meeting with him. I like to work that way more in an abstract. And then, obviously, you know, adjust it to a particular scene or, you know, edit it to the image or, you know, work, and if you need to extend a part or something. But the themes, the mood of the music of of the film... I like to do it that way, and I feel like, for example, Ang will listen to the music during the shooting and play the music to the actors. I know Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu in some of the hospital scenes in 21 Grams, he played the music on the set because ah, he was going to replace the sound anyhow, yeah. so he could kind of create a mood by playing the music, and um, so I think the music also becomes kind of a part of the fabric of the film in a different way. Yes. Uh, Rather than, than an
1: accompaniment, it's part of the fabric.
0: And, yeah, and usually, I mean, I have to say, in the, the way the, the industry works is that the musician or the composer comes at the very end when yeah. the movie's already edited with some temp music, yeah. which is music from other people, from other mm-hmm. movies, and then the composer kind of has to, you know, chase that temp. And that's... Not really very creative, to right. be honest. I, I just don't don't like to work that way. I don't do many films. I, I'm very very uh, picky about selecting the films that I get involved with, but I feel very proud of them, and I like the way that I've been able to work in them.
1: I saw online a really interesting conversation that you were part of with John Williams. Mm-hmm. And you you brought up the subject of the move the music in psycho and in Jaws, which of course he did. Um,
0: well he didn't do psycho, psycho. No, was no, jaws, right, right jaws. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Jaws, yeah.
1: Yeah. And just say a little bit more about what you hear happening in, you know, those two pieces of music, or just to choose one of them. What it is in how that's composed and played, that how that's hooking into the human psyche.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, the element of obsessiveness, the choice of the timbers being, you know, the low brass that, that John used, or the one, you know, that are used in Seku, which are really high strings, you yeah. know, by Bernard heaven um, And something that co- connects, I think, With a heartbeat, in a way. I mean, how how when we get anxious, our heartbeat kind of accelerates.
1: Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. Uh, There is a connection with that anxiety. It produces uh, not only tension, but anxiety. I think that that, that's... uh, really interesting about those two pieces that, because, you know, tension, there's a lot of pieces that create tension, but these pieces not only create tension, they create a high level of anxiety. Yeah. I mean, they mastered it. There's, there's, you know, other pieces in history, but I think those two are, you know, iconic.
1: To go a little bit deeper with that idea, I feel like from a very early age and all the way through your life with music, you live with a conviction that music has the power to transform people, that it is tra- a transformative medium. And I wonder if you could say, what does music work in us that makes it transformative when it is?
0: First of all, I think anything that steers your emotions have the potential to transform you. Yeah, And I think music has that power, you know, it's it's something that really, even if it's something that we can't necessarily articulate, there is a process for me of uh, when you are confronted with a work of art and with a great piece of music, of learning something different uh, about the world, about life, about yourself, and I think that transforms you.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. You often speak of yourself as an artist, Mm-hmm. Not a musician, an artist mm-hmm. who works in the with music, and you've also said that art is a way of reorganizing reality.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I when when you think about the music, the scale, right? It's twelve notes. I mean, it's yeah. you know the seven notes with the s- semitones and stuff. Basically, it's you know the way I organize those notes that will be you know my melody, and you know the way other guy will organize those will be his melody, and the way you organize three notes it will be a chord or four notes are a chord, and so, I mean, a, a painter that decides and interprets a sunset in a particular way, you know, but it's really. Putting reality in in a peculiar way of looking at reality, you know? mm-hmm. so he's reorganizing it in a very peculiar way. That peculiar way is what gives you the the tag, the brand. It's a Picasso because he, he has a particular way of reorganizing reality and the, the vision of reality, his vision of reality. You know, yeah. Um, and I think that's what is so exciting. That uh, and and. It's something, once again, that transform us and also exercise us. I mean, art has that possibility, you know? So, you know, that's what somebody that's feeling very sad and writes a a piece of music. It's a way of exercising that and turning, transforming that, you know, sadness into something now, you know, reorganizing those feelings in a way that now materialize in a piece of music.
1: Right. That's a form of transformation as well.
0: Yeah,
1: you are more recently working on the soundtrack for a video game, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to ask you about that because I mean, so when I look this, this is called The Last of Us, and when I look yes. up the description yes. of it, it says action, adventure, survival, horror video game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it has mm-hmm. the caution blood and gore, intense violence, sexual themes, strong
0: language. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all of you above you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I wonder how you think about I I sense that for you there's there's a purposefulness in everything you do in your music and uh, how do you think about the meaning or the transformation that's happening with Something like this video game, and and granted, I'm and I'm I'm giving you the Wikipedia definition of it, and I have not I have not really seen it, so I, I'm curious about your well, experience. Well, the
0: that. the video game, I mean, represented for me to start with a, a challenge, you know, to do yeah. something in a different media that I've never worked before. That was already very attractive to me. I'm not a gamer myself, but I have a 15 year old son that is a gamer that yeah, plays right. you know, all kinds of games. So I thought. Uh, that this was fantastic. It's a game, you know, that even if it has some of the elements and the codes that are related to this type of games, it really brought to the table a whole bunch of different thing and spaces. And I'm very interested in that, you know, sort of virtual world. And I, I yeah. see it at, at home, you know, with my son and, and you know, how can be very distracting in a way, but also can be very enjoyable and very... Um, useful in a certain sense because you ha- you you have to develop certain abilities como si habilidades certain skills yeah. you know that they are interesting you know strategies or logistics logistic that you know make your your brain work in a different way yeah, as and that anything whole, else yeah it should be done with uh, moderation right <laughs> yeah If not you yeah. know, it can become but, a, I mean, a whole, zombie yourself you know <laughs>
1: that whole genre of uh, uh, you know action adventure survival horror is is everywhere especially for these for new generations, there's something about this. Probably
0: something that reflects the outside reality. Yeah. It's a way to, to put it together. And it's, it's another way of reorganizing reality.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. We, we live in a society that is unfortunately full of zombies and horror and, yeah. and, you know, awful things. And unfortunately, we just can't go into a console and take care of them. You That's know?
1: right. This is from Gustavo Santaolalla's score for the popular video game, The Last of Us. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. My guest, Gustavo Santaolalla, is best known in the U.S. for his movie soundtracks. He's won two Academy Awards for the scores for Babel and Brokeback Mountain. You know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is um, Motorcycle Diaries, which was about Che Guevara. Yes. And, you know, my colleague Lily, who's, who's Colombian, you know, talks about how, how especially people in Latin America saw that and reacted to that. And just the question about, you know, your own identity, which we talked about in the beginning as an Argentinian, as a Latin American, um, as a global citizen, just was that story— and was working with music with that story meaningful for you in a special way?
0: It was very meaningful because I would say that, you know, I, I come from that generation um, yeah. where, I mean, all all those moments were happening at the same, at the same time that the Beatles were happening. Yeah, che Guevara was, you know, in full force. You know, so, I mean, lots of things. And, you know, and Eastern philosophies were coming. And, I mean, I come from that generation. So he's a a man that definitely has marked us. Uh, his uh, The fact also that he's Argentinian and the fact that he was a, you know, a guy that until the very end stayed true to his beliefs and, and he was a revolutionary, you know, he was a guy that thought that it was necessary to implement the use of weapons uh, to sometimes, you know, get, but what he viewed was a better world. Um, I particularly... Loved working in motorcycle diaries because it tapped into a moment in his life in which he wasn't still Che; he was Ernesto Guevara. He was a you know right, right. a guy that uh, became a, a doctor, you know, and and he wanted to to really go out and look at the world. I mean, this is uh, a time, you know, in the '50s and stuff, you know, very very related to. You know, to also people, you know, like Kerouac and people, I mean, that really right, wanted right. to go on that road to try to find answers for themselves. It was, you know, it was a self-discovery sort of discovery, uh, trip. And uh, so that, that trip that he took with Granado was something that really, I think, kind of shaped and formed the Che to come. You know what I mean? So yes. he, I mean, all those experiences that he lived in those fair first trips marked him profoundly I think like uh, when you read I mean, the story of, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, you know, the Buddha, when he finally went out of the the palace and went and out to the outside world and looked at what was happening, came back, he was totally transformed. He knew he he wanted to, to do something, you know. And I think um, of uh, Ernesto the same way, you know. I think that that was very important for him, to decide what he was going to do and what he was going to devote the rest of his life.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. In Argentina, you traveled a long way musically and geographically. You you left. You you've gone back. Um, it seems to me that you've always thought about identity. It's kind of been a theme through your life, um, mm-hmm. and also had music as a as a source of spirit and meaning. And I, I wonder. What what have you learned about you know what what do you know now that you that you didn't know when you left Argentina at twenty four What are what are some of the insights that have come with time and experience that you might not have guessed then?
0: Well, I think I mean one of obviously transformative experiences to having kids, to yeah. have, you know, to to have uh, children and and all of my my children were born here in the United States. I mean the. the bilingual and they know they go to Argentina at least once a year and they have traveled extensively so they have that I tend also for them to have that uh, global quality but I think I mean that's something definitely that that when I came from Argentina, didn't know, and that's something that obviously transforms you as a human being. You know, it's the, yeah. the, the biggest decentralizing factor that you can encounter. <laughs> I like that. That's a good way in, in to put your, it. Yeah. In your life is having a kid. Yeah. You know. So, um, the, I learned also because I travel so much around the world. I mean, I I kind of been able to support some of my ideas. The ideas, you know, that that we talked before that, you know, how diverse we are and how similar we are. Because I've been around the world and I had the opportunity to travel, you know, not in all the world, but, you know, quite a bit of of a road. You know, I've been in, in big places like, you know, China or India or Japan and, you know, several times, you know, in Africa and, you know, Europe and Greece and Turkey and uh, Israel. I think, I mean, I... I one of the things is reaffirming things that we always knew. I mean, in a way, I think you know, we 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 everything that we learn is actually we're relearning it. You know, yeah, something, something that we already knew, we already knew, but but now we are confronted with something, and we we connect with the knowledge that we already have, and that's part of the process of learning. Yeah. Um, so leaving Argentina gave me a lot, a lot of that. I mean, I left Argentina in a really bad moment. You left Argentina
1: we, we, right as the dirty war was starting, right? You,
0: yeah, in uh, the middle of the dirty right war.
1: Right, in the middle, yeah.
0: So, so you know, as, as you know, we have 30,000 people disappeared. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was really horrible. And we're still suffering from that. I mean, we're still, fortunately, in the last 10 years, you know, most of the people that have been involved in those heinous crimes have been brought to justice and put in jail a lot of them you know yeah. which didn't happen before because they had they had amnesties and all these awful you know things that just to, you know to get away with it but now most of them are are in jail but we still you know f- feel the repercussions of, of, of what happened I mean we have organizations like you know Madres de Plaza de Mayo and we have Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo which actually Abuelas is an organization that is trying to identify and find, you know, grandkids of people that were disappeared. Right, right. we know we have 500 of them and we only have recouped like around 120 yeah. now yeah. Uh, meaning recoup is, you know precisely, that's how, how they call it finding their identity finding who their parents were and and, you know, what happened to them and that's basically, you know uh, in some cases, some of those kids um, have been raised by nice families, and in some cases, have been raised by the same people that actually mm-hmm. killed their parents. Yeah. So it's—I mean—it's really so. So in that context, you know, I came from from Argentina to look at the world and and uh, realize, you know, why also these things happen and how how injustice, you know, uh, uh, goes rampant around the world and and what can I do to make a difference, and how can the work that you do affect people and transform people. Like what we were talking before, I think uh, it is uh, very important. And with all the other thing that also I learned, and, and I think time was very helpful, is how to deal with, you know, these great recognitions that you can get through, you know, through your career, you know. Right. And how can you put that in, in context, you know, and... and Realize that actually, you know, the awards are never given to you as a person. They're giving to your work to mm. start with. And your internalizing mini-
1: that distinction.
0: Yes, and your work is not only the fruit of your job. So that's one. And the other one is that usually when you are there in, in, in the podium, you know, getting an award and stuff, that's also the... The culmination of, of a phase or, or, or work that involved other people, not only yourself.
1: Right, right.
0: So, you know, I mean, I think all, all those things I learned with time
1: yeah. and age. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so let me just ask you this big question. In some ways, we've been, we've been talking about this the whole time, but this life you've lived, you know, mm-hmm. where you were born, where you've gone, and, and your mm-hmm. life in music, you know, how do you think that's formed your sense of what it means to be human? How do you think about that question?
0: I felt, you know, that um, I haven't, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because I felt that I had control of my life and I do have control of my life. But at the same time, I'm very aware that I don't, you know, I think this is something that happens to everybody, you know, yeah. but I've been also proved so many times that something else was. You know, coincidence, says whatever it is. But situations that actually I didn't have anything, to, or something to do, but not really any logistics behind. You know, the way I came into making music for movies, for example. You know, I've always been told that my music was very visual, but um, you know, my my first coming really to some some type of recognition was because I did the music for Amores Perros, you know. And I almost didn't do that music, hmm. because uh, I... Um I was so busy making records at the time, and I never saw a script. I never saw a rough cut, and it was Alejandro's first, was a first-time director, and I was so busy. I said, you know, tomorrow call and say, please, I'm not going to be able to do this, and in the middle of the night, right. I woke up, and I started thinking, what if this guy's a genius, you know, and I'm not, so that's how that happened. He turned me into Walter Salles, and one thing, I mean, it, all life, and, and suddenly, you know, in, I was doing motorcycle diets, and suddenly when we present Motorcycle Diaries and I was doing a Broadback Mountain. And and I remember the first time I was nominated for a Grammy, I lost. And I thought, this is it. This is my career. This right. was my big opportunity. You know, and I missed it. And then, you know, life proved me differently. And so so I'm very, in a way, I mean, I try to control what I do. But at the same time, I like to dance with whatever rhythm life proposes to me. <laughs> okay.
1: Santo Olaya has composed film scores for over a dozen features, including Amores Peros, The Motorcycle Diaries, Brokeback Mountain, Babel, On the Road, and Wild Tales. He also composed the opening score for the hit Netflix series Making of a Murderer. His latest solo album is called Camino. In case you missed it, we launched a shorter form podcast this year, Becoming Wise, vignettes in the mystery and art of living. These are shareable seven to 12 minute dips into wise and luminous lives and nourishing ideas urgent for our time. People like Brene Brown, Elie Wiesel, Seth Godin, and Maria Popova. And you can download all 20 episodes from the inaugural season right now, wherever podcasts are found. being is Trent Gillis Chris Hegel Lily Percy Mariah Helgeson Maya Tarrell Annie Parsons Marie Sambalay Bethany Klecker Selena Carlson Dupe Oyebolu, and Ariana Nettleman On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org, Caliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of Public Theology Reimagined and the Osprey Foundation a catalyst for empowered healthy and fulfilled lives. On being
0: is distributed by PRX the Public Radio Exchange and is a Krista Tippett public production.